Welcome to Visiting Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. In this series, we ask community-based oncologists to arrange for a special CME clinic where patients in their practices meet a visiting investigator in the field. And for this issue, Dr. Dennis Lowenthal arranged for a number of his patients with lung cancer to meet Dr. Rogerio Lillenbaum. After the day meeting with these patients, I sat down with them to find out what happened, beginning with a patient Dr. Lowenthal presented with advanced non-small cell. Case number one is a 74-year-old male hypertensive who smoked one pack per day for many years, who in March of 2008 had a productive cough with one episode of blood-streaked hemoptysis, which led to a CAT scan and subsequent CAT scan biopsy of a left lingular mass, which was returned favoring non-small cell lung cancer, not otherwise specified. Subsequent PET-CTs showed both his lingular mass as well as osseous metastases to the right and left iliac bones, left acetabulum, and right sacroiliac joint, as well as increased bilateral mediastinal nodes. Mutation studies were all negative. Rogerio, histology means a lot more nowadays than before in non-small cell. Any comments on the diagnosis of non-small cell not otherwise specified? And so this is a category that fortunately for all of us is shrinking rapidly. You know, I think we as medical oncologists have tried to talk to our pathologist colleagues and educate them as to the relevance of the subtype of non-small cell lung cancer that we see in clinical practice. So if we go back to 4599, for example, the bevacizumab pivotal trial, about 20% of patients were included as NOS. Interestingly, the NOS population in 4599 they were eligible for bevacizumab and had outcomes that were similar to patients who had known adenocarcinoma histology. So that's an interesting observation. When we deal with this in our institution, one aspect of this distinction, which you know once in a while may really be quite difficult for the pathologist to make despite the stains, is can you at least tell me if it is a squamous or a non-squamous? In other words, I don't really need to know if it's an adeno or a large cell as much, but I really need to know if this is a squamous. And in that case, the pathologist very often will be willing to commit a little bit more and say, well, I can tell you it's not a squamous. And that helps tremendously already. Another kind of related question, Rogerio, is sometimes you see PATH reports that say mixed adenosquamous. How do you approach that? So that's another challenging situation, and not as uncommon as we, I think, imagined in the past. I mean, there is an entity, if you look at the classification, the WHO classification, there is adenosquamous carcinoma. So that's a known entity. But then often the pathologists will tell us there's adenocarcinoma with squamous elements, you know, or a squamous component or vice versa. So in that case, and I'm not sure how much of this has been validated scientifically, I basically tried to get a sense of how big is that component? In other words, is this the predominant histology of the tumor, or this is a minority of the sample that you have in terms of squamous versus non-squamous. And if the pathologist says, no, these are scattered elements, or this is just a section of the samples that I have, then I approach that patient as if they had a non-squamous cancer. So now, when this patient presented a couple of years ago, Dennis, you said he had a long smoking history, but was he still smoking? He was. 
He was. And I'm just kind of curious, Ruggiero, he had mutation studies done. In what situations do you do mutation testing, and particularly on smokers? So I think Dennis and I have a very similar approach to this in his institution as in my institution. We test all of the non-squamous patients routinely. We're not yet at a point that we test every single patient for research purposes, so we don't test squamous cell patients, and I believe that that's supported by NCCN guidelines as well as recent ASCO guidelines. Once in a while, we may run into a patient, and Dennis and I talked about this, who is an oligosmoker with a squamous cell or never smoker, or a very atypical presentation for a squamous, or, you know, in those cases, obviously, we'll go the extra mile and do the tests. But we are, at this point, limited to non-squamous patients. So I think you have a mutation-positive patient later, Dennis, but as long as you brought up the mutation testing, I'm curious, right now in your institution, how long does it take you to get an EGFR mutation back? And do you go ahead and do the EML4 ALK up front or only reflex when it's EGFR negative? And then how long does it take to get that? Well, good question, Alan. It used to take a long time, but since we went in-house, we now do all of the testing in-house and we get pretty much all our mutation studies back in less than a week. And we do the whole panel. I asked our pathology folks, you know, from a cost expense standpoint, you know, how much more is it to do all three at once rather than go back after you do EGFR and KRAS and if they're wild, do the ALK testing. And the additional expense is very little on the order of 30 to $50. So we run all of them right at the same time and we get them back now within a week. So I'm going to say, Rogerio, it sounds good to me. Sounds like breast cancer. Is that what you do? Oh, I think that's perfect. I think the turnaround time for us is maybe a little longer. We don't do all these tests in-house. So less than a week is phenomenal. And as you said, I think that's probably as good as it will be in clinical practice moving forward. So Dennis, this man presented with widespread disease, and this is a couple of years ago. How did you treat him and would you do the same thing today? Well, at the time we made his original treatment, the, the options were basically a platinum doublet, either with a taxane or at that time even Pemetrexit. And I was sort of a creature of habit. And so at the time I put him on docetaxel and carboplatin as well as Bev. Would that change today? It probably would. I've sort of migrating toward Pemetrexate, Carbo and Bev up front with the continuous maintenance data that just came out in the Paramount trial. I think that is probably where I'll be going. So we'll get Ruggiero's take on this, but one other decision you faced in the beginning was bone-targeted therapy treatment. What were you thinking then? What do you think you might likely do now? We did put him on zoledronic acid, and he remains on a bone agent until this time. We recently switched him to denosumib because his creatinine had bumped a bit, but he's an ongoing therapy. Interesting. So, Rogerio, maybe you can reflect back again on that initial decision that Dennis was commenting on in terms of choice of chemo, bevacizumab, and also bone-targeted therapy, you know, a couple of years ago and today. Clearly, Dennis approached this patient as a non-squamous patient, decided that this patient was eligible for bevacizumab, and then chose a platinum or carboplatin-based doublet that he was comfortable with. And absolutely reasonable choice of carboplatin and docetaxel. And treated this man, he apparently achieved a nice partial response after six cycles, and 
maintained that individual subsequently on Bevacizumab alone. And then we'll hear the rest of the story as we move on. So as far as first-line regimen, this is as reasonable a choice as any other in that context. I think Dennis expressed the sentiment of many oncologists in the United States these days who are gradually moving into maybe carboplatin, pemetrexid, and bevacizumab as their first-line choice. But in 2008, that was clearly not the case. And yes, this is someone with multiple skeletal metastases who would benefit from bisphosphonates and was adequately treated. And so far, to the best of my knowledge, Dennis, you can correct me, has not had a skeletal-related event. That's correct. Uh-huh. So the other issue now, in this case, this patient had the creatinine go up, but what about the nosumab up front, Rogerio? So this is another agent that's getting a lot of traction. You know, Dennis and I talked about this early today, and in some subset analysis of the studies that have been done with this agent in comparison with zolantronic acid, you know, it appears to be at least as effective, and in some cases, actually more effective. So I suspect that we will see also a gradual migration into the use of this agent in lieu of the more traditional bisphosphonates. So can you talk a little bit, Dennis, about how he did on the docetaxel carbo and bevacizumab, and also what his lifestyle was like at the time he was initiating treatment, his family situation, et cetera? Well, his lifestyle, Neil, he was a retired salesman. He was enjoying his retirement liked to travel a lot, liked to hunt and fish a lot. And he was in pretty good health at the time of his diagnosis. Spouse? Yes, spouse is living. They traveled together. Very close. I don't think I've ever seen him on a visit where he was not accompanied by his spouse. So they're a good team. They're a good couple. And actually, he did well. He's done quite well with his treatment. As Rogerio alluded to, he had a modest pet partial remission to his initial six cycles. We continued Bev and Zoledronic Acid. That went on for about nine months until a surveillance PET scan showed a generalized increase in the metabolic activity of all of his prior lesions, and we actually put him back on the same regimen. Received four cycles from July to October of 2009. His disease remained stable after we reevaluated him, and then we subsequently switched him at that time to a maintenance program with Pemetrexit and Bev, which continues to this day. And as we saw him today, he is doing quite well with an excellent performance status and minimal disease, minimal objectifiable disease. What have you seen, if anything, in terms of Bev issues? I think you mentioned he was hypertensive. Did he start out before you even started treating him on antihypertensive medications? What happened with his blood pressure? He remains on antihypertensive medications. Hypertension has never been a problem for him during the entire course. Anything else? Nosebleeds? No. He had the one episode of very minimal hemoptysis prior to the start of his treatment way back at the beginning, but we decided that was not sufficient to preclude the use of bevacizumab, and he's done very well. Uh, Just a side note there, Ruggiero, how much hemoptysis is too much? You know, so Dennis and I also talked about this this morning, and I told him of some of my experiences in the past with patients with hemoptysis, and I think it's very difficult, if not impossible, to quantify hemoptysis. I mean, if a patient comes to us and says, you know, I had a couple of specks of blood, you know, that came out with the phlegm, 
I don't pay too much attention to that or if there are a couple of blood streaks that happen once or twice at the most. And this is without counting the patients who have that after a bronchoscopy, for example, which really should not be included in the same category. But if someone says, I coughed up blood, you know, it was basically blood, you know, mixed with phlegm, and I did this a few times, that patient is a patient that I typically get very fearful of using bevacizumab up front. Now, when he received the pemetrexid, were there any side effects that you could identify from that? Not originally, Neil, but one actually that came to mind that actually Rogerio pointed out to me, he developed over time a peripheral edema, symmetrical peripheral edema in both of his lower extremities, and we did a mega workup. He was Dopplered. We ruled out nephrotic range proteinuria. We ruled out cardiomyopathy, congestive heart failure. And I was not so aware of this, but as Rogerio pointed out to me today, actually this has been seen with long-term use of Pemetrexit. And I was not aware of it. It has sort of resolved somewhat on its own over time. But for a long period of time, he had symmetrical, significant peripheral edema that we just could not explain. And did you use diuretics or anything? We gave him diuretics. He responded a little bit to the diuretics, but not dramatically. And it's just gotten better over time. What's your experience with this issue, Ruggiero? And what specifically did you see with him today or hear in terms of what happened to him? So actually today he looked particularly well, you know, so he had minimal really lower extremity edema, no significant erythema, no tenderness. But I think we have for a long time seen patients on pemetrexid that develop uh, lower extremity edema. Sometimes the edema has a cellulitic component. It becomes painful. It can be red, not unlike what we saw in the past with gemcitabine. And this is actually something that Mark Chris and his colleagues at Sloan Kettering published not too long ago. It had previously been published by people outside of the country. So I think it's a known side effect of this drug that needs to be included in the differential diagnosis of these patients. Now, let me see. If I understand correctly, he's been in Pemetrexid bevacizumab for like two years? That's correct. And he's still on it now? He's still on it now. Hmm. Any thoughts about giving him a holiday or is he seem pretty... We, we actually talked about that. We talked about going to four weeks, which we will probably do. We've talked about a holiday and you know, he's done so well that I think there's a reluctance on his part to take too much of a holiday. I don't mind giving holidays when patients need it or when they ask for it or when they need to travel outside the country. But right now, I think at most he's willing to go to a four-week schedule, which I'm perfectly comfortable with. So, Rogerio, of course, there's been a lot of debate about induction and maintenance therapy in this situation. Maybe you can comment a little bit about the point break trial, and I think there's an ECOG trial that's trying to sort of tease this out. But sort of generally, conceptually, how do you approach these patients in terms of what your plan's going to be for first line and maintenance? And how do you approach a patient who maybe got, let's say, some kind of therapy, maybe carbo, paclitaxel, bev, on the outside, and then comes to see you as a second opinion after they've had a few cycles. So, and I think we have the data or have had the data for switch maintenance, you know, for a few years now with pemetrexid and erlotinib. You can make a case for docetaxel to be included in that category. It's not exactly the same thing as the trials that were done for pemetrexid and erlotinib. I think what really has changed, however, in the past 12 months or so 
are the trials that looked at continuation maintenance. And the Paramount trial that Dennis alluded to, which was presented a few months ago, really opened that door, even though physicians, all of us in the community, had already, to some extent, adopted that same strategy. So this was a trial in which patients received a pemetrexid-based regimen up front you know, with a platinum analog for four cycles, and then were randomized to continuation maintenance with pemetrexid until progression or placebo. And there was a significant difference in progression-free survival in favor of those who receive continuation pemetrexid. There was a previous trial that we don't talk about as much. It was presented the year before from a French group that looked at both of these strategies. And patients received a cis-gemcitabine combination up front and then were randomized to either no maintenance, gemcitabine maintenance, which would be then continuation maintenance, or erlotinib, which would be the switch maintenance. This is by Dr. Peral and colleagues from France. And both strategies or both of the maintenance arms were superior to the control arm. So they were not compared directly. So the continuation maintenance with gemcitabine was better than no maintenance, and the switch maintenance with erlotinib was better than no maintenance. Numerically speaking, actually, the numbers were more robust for the continuation gemcitabine than they were for the switch erlotinib. But again, these two arms were not compared directly. And this was, I think, again, the first time that we saw data suggesting that continuation maintenance may play a role in some of these patients, even though a similar trial that Dr. Bellani presented, which included a significant percentage of patients with performance status 2, had not shown an advantage for continuation gemcitabine. So I think this is a rapidly evolving field. And we discussed the Avapurl trial that was presented just a month or so ago in Europe. This was a trial in which patients received cis, pemetrexid, and bevacizumab, and were subsequently randomized to bevacizumab alone, as we typically do, or pemetrexid and bevacizumab in combination as maintenance. And again, there was a significant difference in progression-free survival in favor of pemetrexid and bevacizumab compared to bevacizumab alone. And it was not subtle. I think the numbers were 10.2 months for the combination versus 6.6, Dennis, for bevacizumab alone. So these are striking numbers showing that the strategy of using a PEM platinum BEV regimen up front followed by both agents in maintenance, which had been pioneered by Patel and her group here in the United States, really seems to be advantageous. And that raises the point of what will the point break trial show, right? Because the point break trial looks exactly at this question. But it's kind of a similar randomization? So it is a similar randomization in the maintenance component, but right. the induction regimen is different. Right. You know, so one regimen is the 4599 regimen, carboplatin, paclitaxel, and BEV, followed by BEV alone, so exactly as in 4599. And the experimental arm, so to speak, is the carboplatin, pemetrexid, and BEV, followed by pemetrexid and BEV, or the Patel regimen. But just on the basis of the maintenance component, you could argue or raise the probability that the experimental arm is likely to be superior. 
So before we go into the next patient, maybe just a couple words about what it's been like to take care of him, Dennis, and Rogerio, sort of your observation on him and his wife today. What has it been like, Dennis? Now it's been several years. Yeah. Well, for many of these patients, we're now seeing people presenting with advanced disease who are now going on for years. And we'll talk about a few others perhaps here today as well, but that is a real pleasure to have someone three plus years down the road after a diagnosis of stage four non-small cell lung cancer, particularly presenting with bone meds, who is doing quite well, quite functional in a very high quality remission. I mean, that's an absolute pleasure. How did initially when he and his wife and his family were confronting this, what were they thinking and how have you seen them kind of evolve over time just in terms of, I guess, their comfort level with what's going on? Well, you know, he's a very laid back guy, Neil. So even from the get-go, not anxious, not stressed. And he's basically had the same demeanor this entire three plus year period of time. Always in a good mood, always happy to come in, always a pleasure to see him. And he's living his life. He's traveling, he's fishing, he's hunting. It's remarkable. And in the old days, very few stories like this. And now quite a few stories like this. So, Ruggieri, I wish I could get like a gene transfer thing so I could, you know, graft on that kind of an attitude. But I'm just kind of curious, sort of looking over Dennis's shoulder today at this patient, any impressions about him as a person? Well, I think exactly what Dennis said. This is someone who has been dealing with this disease for quite some time, seems very comfortable with, you know, his situation right now, has complete confidence in his physician. And I think the communication is really as good as any physician could hope to have, you know, with his or her patient. I think it was pleasant. It was informative. The options were discussed. And he is one of those guys who will always, I'm sure, every time he has a decision to make, he will look at Dennis and say, what would you do, doc? And uh, I'm sure he will be guided in the right direction. It was, it was really very fun to watch this. 